my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. If you weren't here last week, Michael, uh, our lead worship leader this morning, uh, he uh, shared with us from God's Word, and I would like to encourage you, if you did not hear that message, to go back and listen to it on either our podcast or on our YouTube channel. Go back and listen to that message. It was uh, definitely, I felt like the Lord was speaking to all of us through uh, through Michael's message. So if you didn't listen to it, I'd encourage you to go back and, and try to catch that. All right, you got your Bible open to Mark chapter 11. This is our study of, the bio, of a biography of Jesus. There's actually four of them in our New Testaments, uh, four biographies of Jesus. And all four authors devote most of their ink to the last week of Jesus' life. And we have come in our study of Mark to the last week of Jesus' life. And if you were here the last time we were in Mark, we talked about how Jesus was a planner. And we said that Jesus planned his entrance into Jerusalem. He planned his cleansing of the temple the next morning. And then he planned his teaching object lesson through the fig tree uh, on that same morning. And he used that object lesson to teach his disciples, to encourage them towards faith and forgiveness. And uh, that was on their journey back into Jerusalem. And that's where we find ourselves in the study. Jesus is making his way back into Jerusalem. And that's when they've run across the, the withered tree. And Jesus has made his, uh, made his point. So they're continuing back into Jerusalem. They've come to the temple. And uh, when they get to the temple, there is a turmoil there, most likely a buzz from what happened the morning before. You remember the morning before? Jesus goes in there and, and basically turns over all the tables of the commerce that was going on there. He accuses them of being thieves uh, and robbers. And of course, it was, I'm sure that was the buzz that morning. And as soon as he walks into the temple, the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership meets him and they have a question for him. And so we're going to pick up our story in chapter 11, verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave, this, who gave you this authority to do these things? So their question is, by what authority do you come into the temple and do what you did yesterday morning? How is it that you can come in here and attack the commerce and you can go through the court of Gentiles and make people stop walking through? How can you do that? Who gave you the authority to do that? Now, it is a strange thought, isn't it, that this man walks into the temple and, and basically overturns all the commerce taking place there when they are the ones in authority, right? It's, it's, it's kind of amazing that they would let him, uh, that they would let him do that. But it just goes to show you that they're scared of Jesus. They're scared of Jesus. Is that me? Sorry, that would be very distracting if it continues. Um, 
So they're scared of Jesus. They're scared of him, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, they're scared of him because of what the people think of him. And they're, and they're wondering, you know, if we turn against Jesus, what will the people do with us? That's, that's one fear, right? The other fear is, I think they're probably a little bit afraid of Jesus because of all the things that he has been doing. And they probably know, they probably know that um, everything that he said the morning before was Old Testament truth. Right. So they know he's actually right. So in verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus doesn't answer them directly. Instead, he says, I will make a deal with you. I'm going to ask you one question. You answer my question and then I'll answer your question. And so verse 30 was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin. Answer me. And they discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe in him? But if we say of human origin, uh, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. So Jesus asked them a question on the same subject line of authority. He said, did John the Baptist come in his own authority? Did he come just by himself saying what he said? Or did he come with God's authority? And I tell you, Jesus is so wise and so smart. I mean, he sets up a dilemma for them and they get it, right? The dilemma is if we say, well, he came from God, then Jesus is going to ask us, why didn't, why didn't we support him? But if we tell the truth and say, we believe that he didn't come from God, he came on his own authority, the people are going to turn against us. And so after deliberating a few minutes, they say, well, we don't know. And when he says, we don't know, Jesus says, well, they don't, we don't know. Jesus says, well, And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, they do know. They do have an answer to that question. Their answer is they don't believe that he came with God's authority, but they're unwilling to say it. And so Jesus says, because you won't answer me, I'm not going to answer you. So just a couple of observations from this little exchange. Here's the first one. The question of Jesus' authority for for them and for us, I think, is paramount. In other words... By what authority did Jesus do what he did all those, all during those three years is a question that all of us have to answer. Did he speak for God or did he not speak for God? Now, Jesus has told them over the last three years, over and over and over again, by what authority he did what he did. He's told them, I speak for God. He said, I do the Father's will. I never do anything except what God tells me uh, to do. So he answers their question, but it's a vital question. He's answered their question. It's a vital question for all of us. By, by whose authority did Jesus do what he did? Now, the second observation, and that, by the way, that's a question you need to ask yourself too. All of us need to ask that question. By what authority did Jesus do what he did? So you have to answer, you have to answer that question yourself. Now the second observation I make is that Jesus' authority has already been amply established. God had already authenticated that Jesus' authority was his own. That Jesus did what he did by the authority and by the power of God. So here, here we find it all throughout the Word of God. Jesus had authority over nature, Mark chapter, just from Mark, just from what we've been studying over the last few months. Jesus had authority over nature. Remember when he, he calmed the storm? Big storm, everybody's terrified. He says, be still, it stops. And what was the response of all the disciples? They bowed down and worshiped, right? Why? Because only God 
could have done that. So he had authority over nature. He had authority over natural laws. He walks on water in Mark chapter 6. Jesus had authority over evil spirits in Mark 5. You remember he cast out a legion of demons uh, from, uh, from this man. Jesus had authority over illness and disease. Again, Mark chapter 5, he heals a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. In Mark chapter 1, it says Jesus healed all kinds of sicknesses, various diseases in 134. He had authority over death. Again, Mark 5, he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. He had authority to forgive sins in Mark 2. He forgives the sins of the paralytic and then to prove it, he raises him up and makes him walk again, right? He gave, he had authority to forgive sins and he proved it. He had authority over creation. Again, Mark chapter 6, he feeds what, maybe 20,000 people, at least 5,000 men. He feeds 5,000 men and more from just a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread, right? So where did all that come from? Well, he had to create it. He has authority over creation. Jesus had his authority in his teaching. Mark chapter 1, the people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority. Now, I'm done with that, but here's the observation. Jesus' authority has been well established for the last three years. Remember, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. His authority has been well established. He speaks for God. He operates with God's authority and with God's power. And then the third observation that I make from this little exchange, and and, and this may, I may... We may or may not be able to apply this universally, but I think we do. We can. Just as Jesus' response to them was dependent on their response to him, I think his response to us will be dependent on our response to him. In case you didn't follow that, let me repeat it. It's worth repeating. Just as Jesus said, my response to you will be dependent on your response to me. I think it's true that our, his response to us is also going to be dependent on our response to him. Now, if you've been a part of this church family, if you've been visiting with us for any amount of time, you have heard this good news of Jesus the King and his kingdom that he's founded, that he started. He's the king. And the word of God teaches us that Jesus, as our king, dies in our place so that we might have victory over the penalty of our sin and that we too may one day be resurrected from the dead. We sang about that just a moment ago, that we might have eternal life because of what he did. So when Jesus returns, his response to you will be determined by your response to him. I really do believe that. And and, and I'm saying that's the point he's making in this story. I'm simply saying it's illustrative of this truth that when Jesus comes again, if you have embraced him and his authority, if you have embraced Jesus as your king, if you're his follower, if you're his disciple, if you've believed in him, if you've received him as your king, then his response will, to you will be to embrace you. But if in your freedom you've chosen not to embrace him, then he's going to be free in his response to you as well. Now the Bible is really clear about Jesus' authority and what's to come. Not just his authority then, but his authority now and his authority in the future. Here's what the Bible says about the authority of Jesus. After the resurrection, Jesus said, after the resurrection, after the resurrection, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples. I think it's Daniel chapter 7 where we see the Son of Man coming on the clouds 
stepping in before the ancient of days. And it says that to him was given all authority and all dominion to reign forever and forever and forever. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, Now Messiah has gone to heaven. He is seated at the place of honor next to God. And all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, This is the plan. At the right time, God will bring everything under the authority of the Messiah. Everything in heaven and on earth. Philippians chapter 2 When the name of Jesus is spoken, everyone will kneel down to worship him. Everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth will kneel down to worship him. Everyone's mouth will say that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah is is Lord. Jesus the Christ is Lord. Now I know this morning that this is a gathering of the followers of Jesus. But there just may be someone here today who has never, ever bowed your life to Jesus. And oh, Michael, I so appreciated what you said in your prayer. I think it was in your prayer. Maybe you encouraged us with this. That worship is, this is, the worship that God desires is this when we come and sing his praise, right? But the worship that God desires of every one of us is the, is the life that we live for him, loving him as our king, right? That's the worship that I give to the Lord every single day. My life is to be an offering of worship, right? And uh, so maybe there is someone here today who's never bowed before the authority of Jesus. And I'd just like to ask you, would you be willing to do that right now? You say, well, how do I do that? Well, it's just as easy as this. Jesus, I recognize your authority and I bow before you and you receive him. You give, you submit your life to him. So beloved, if that, if you've not do that, what are you waiting for? Today, now's the moment to do that, right? Now I'll have an application for all of us in a little bit. The question of authority prompts a parable from Jesus. Remember, parables are stories that Jesus threw alongside truth to help illustrate it. And this parable that we're going to look at is, is a little bit different than a lot of the other parables. A lot of the other parables begin like this. My kingdom, or the kingdom of God, is like this. And God and Jesus seeks to illustrate for us how his kingdom is different than the world's kingdoms. And she has story after story trying to teach us the nature of his kingdom, right? This one's a little bit different. I don't think this is so much a parable about the kingdom, but I think this is a parable about God, about his character and his judgment. So let's look at the parable. It begins in chapter 12, verse 1. And uh, the first thing, and so I'm just going to point out some things I, I, I think that Jesus would want us to note about God in the parable, okay? So as we look at the story, I think Jesus would want us to note these things about God. So here's the first one. God has a plan. So in chapter 12, verse 1, the parable begins. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. Now the man in the story, and I'm, I'm going to, a spoiler alert, I'm going to jump ahead and tell you that the man in the story is God, right? The man is illustrative of God. And basically he says God has a plan. And God's plan has been to plant a vineyard. And he wanted to plant a vineyard that was good, that had good grapes. And that vineyard that, that God planted is a metaphor, if you would, for God's people. So let's go back to the Old Testament for just a minute. Just listen 
Uh, this is from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5, speaking for God. He said, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. So the prophet says, I'm going to sing about the one I love, God, and his vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it, even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grace but it yielded worthless ones. And Isaiah goes on to say that God's desire in planting this vineyard, this plan that he had, was that he would get good grapes. Now the vineyard represents the kingdom of God. The vineyard represents the people of God, or maybe the grapes represent the people of God. And what God desired was good people, good grapes, good, good members of his kingdom, people who would love him and who would live for him. That's what God desired. God wanted a vineyard that would bless all the nations of the world. God wanted a vineyard that when people would come to that vineyard, they would be refreshed by the wine of joy from that vineyard or the wine of life. But instead of good grapes, what he got was worthless ones, worthless grapes. God promised them that would be that vineyard that he planted years ago. He said, I'm done protecting you. I'm not going to protect you anymore. I'm tearing down the wall. I'm going to let people overrun you. And that's exactly what happened. He allowed his vineyard, which was his people, the nation of Israel, all right, he allowed Babylon and others to come in and overrun them. So from the beginning, God's plan was to raise up a people to represent them, represent him. And this, this people were going to be refreshment to the rest of the world. And God chose Abraham to be the founder of that, of that people group that he would use. All right. And he established Abraham as the father of this nation. He planted Abraham in one of the central trade routes of his day so that he could show off his kingdom to the rest of the world. And uh, that was God's plan, a vineyard to bless the world, a people to bless the world, a kingdom to bless the world. Here's the second thing I think that Jesus wants us to note about God. He had a plan to plant a vineyard. But here's the second thing. God is good. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. The parable not only reveals that the man in this story had a plan, but the man in this story was good. He put a fence around his vineyard. He provided protection from animals and thieves. He built a wine press in the middle for the pressing out of grapes. He provided everything that the vineyard needed for protection, and he provided everything the vineyard needed to be productive. He'd given them everything. He even built a watchtower in the middle. I, I read that the watchtower served, obviously, as a lookout against the enemies, but it was also a, a place where the tenants would have lived, could have lived. So the man, the owner of the vineyard, he's good for providing these things in his vineyard, right? So he's good. And of course, the man we've already said represents God. The owner represents God. And so I think Jesus is trying to say by how this man created this vineyard and created it good. I think he's trying to say, hey, this owner is good. This God who planted this vineyard, he is a good God. And so all throughout the Bible, here are things we read. Psalm 119, 168. You are good. You do only good. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. And really from the beginning to the end of the Bible, we read that God is good. Over and over again, the Bible reminds us of that. I think one of the reasons why, you know, we need to be reminded of that is, is something that you prayed, Butch, this morning, or not Butch, a uh, monk, you prayed this morning. Um, 
You know, when bad things happen to us, we tend to doubt the goodness of God, right? When the vineyard of our life gets overrun, we're like, you know, where's, where's this good God, this good God who created me and who saved me? You know, I think we have to be reminded that circumstances are not an indicator of God's goodness. But Jesus is pointing out God is good because he's given us everything we need. He's given us everything we need to be who God wants us to be. The third thing that the parable shows us is that God is patient. Look at verse 2. At harvest time, remember this is a story that Jesus is just telling. It's meant to represent a truth. It's meant to come alongside something and teach something. God is patient. Verse 2. At the harvest time, he, that would be the owner, sent a servant to the tenants or the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then they sent another, and they killed that one. And he also sent many others, some they beat, and others they killed. I think Jesus is highlighting for you and me that the owner, God in this case, is good, and he has a plan. But I think he's highlighting also that God is patient with us. God's patience has a long leash. God's patience moves very slowly. God's patience may seem to us endless. And I'm going to see if I can't make that point in a minute. But it seems like God's patience is, is endless. Uh, we saw this man lease out his vineyard. He put tenants in charge of it. Now, the vineyard is his people. The people who are tending the vineyard is Israel. I think God expected a one-on-one overlap of those two things. The people of God would be bigger than just Israel, but all of Israel would be his people. And, and he made them the tenant farmers over his vineyard, over his harvest. And, uh, of course, remember what he got was worthless grapes, right? Well, when the owner wanted to do, in this parable, in the story Jesus is telling, when the owner wanted his share from the tenant farmers... It says that he sent them a servant say, hey, it's time, guys. We, we, I, want, I want my share of the crop. And instead of them giving that to him, they said, hey, we want this for ourselves. We really don't want your involvement in our lives. We really don't want you. We really just want this vineyard that you've created, this good stuff that you've given us as the tenants. We don't really want you. And so they sent this servant back beat up thinking, well, that'll be it. The owner will, the owner will get the message, right? But the owner sends them another person and another person. And they beat them up and they beat them up. And then they started killing them. And it's, and Jesus said, they're sending, he's sending servant after servant. They're killing some. They're beating up some. And, and God's patience just continues. They reject the owner. They reject the one who made them the tenants to start with. And uh, the owner keeps being patient. He's being patient with them. I think, you know, it's funny. We, we, we read the text from the, from the sermon on Sunday morning. We read it in our 8 o'clock prayer time. And I remember the first comment by one sister in our prayer time this morning. She goes, well, if that was me after the first servant, I'd, I'd have gone down there and done some business, right? And I, and I kind of think that's how all of us feel, right? But God's patience isn't like that. God continued on and on and on. So what is Jesus saying here? Obviously, Israel are the tenants. Israel is the vineyard in some ways, but Israel are the tenants. There's an overlap there. 
And, uh, and he's been patient with them. Jesus says the prophets would be all the servants that Jesus, that God has sent them. Remember prophet after prophet after prophet in the Old Testament went to Israel, say, guys, repent, repent, turn back to, turn back to the owner, turn back to the one who gave you the vineyard to start with. But they would not listen. And Jesus is saying, God has demonstrated his patience with you over and over and over. Now, before I move on, before I move on, let me make clear, there's an application here for us. God is patient with us. God's not just been patient with Israel. God's been patient with us. God's been patient with even the world, if you would. God may have sent messengers into your life over and over and over again, and you just uh, rejected them. You even ridiculed them. It's been a long time since I told the story, but when I was in college, before I began to follow the Lord, I'm a freshman, I'm pretty sure I'm a, I'm a freshman this year. And of course, you know, I grew up in the church and I know all about Jesus, but I'm not following Jesus at all. And this young Christian man, I, I can't remember his name, I don't remember anything about him, but he comes knocking on my door and he wants to come in and talk to us about Jesus. And my roommate and I let him in. And I can remember he was nervous and he was shaking. I don't remember what he said, but he did his best to talk to me about Jesus. And you know what? I don't think I ridiculed him to his face, but when he left, my roommate and I just made fun of this religious zealot. And uh, we made fun of, uh, of that guy. And I've, I, my whole entire life, I've, I've, I've asked the Lord from time to time, Lord, is there any way I could find out who that guy was so I could go back and say, I'm sorry, but who knows? God may have used, God may have used you in my life back, uh, back then. Some of you have had friends and family that have done that. They have tried to reach out to you. You may have shunned them, ignored them, looked down on them, but God was patient and he just kept, he kept on after you and after you. And maybe, maybe at some point, you know, the, 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 the light came on. You saw and you believed because, because of them. But maybe some of you are still in that boat of just, Closing down all these messengers, but God is still, God is still patient. Some of you are now the followers of Jesus who are taking the message of Jesus to others. And maybe you're finding that other people are shutting you down, rejecting you, belittling you, devaluating you because of your faith in the Lord Jesus. You be patient because God is patient with us. Next one. God loves. I think he, he wants to tell us about God's love. Verse six. He, that'd be the owner, still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now in the story that Jesus is telling, the owner has a son. And notice what he says about the son. Hey, this is my beloved son. Notice he says, hey, if I send my son, surely they will respect my son. But they don't. They don't respect the son. In the story, Jesus tells, they kill the son. And they think our takeover of the vineyard is complete, right? We've done away with the heir. Now remember, the vineyard represents God's kingdom, God's people. And he's going to be sending his son into this dangerous situation where these tenants have either killed or beaten uh, his other servants. And yet, 
The owner feels such allegiance to his vineyard, such, such care for his vineyard that he is willing to send his son into this, uh, into this situation. And they're going to end up killing him, of course, and throwing him outside, uh, outside the vineyard like common trash. When I think of the, the parallels between the owner and God, it seems clear Jesus is trying to tell us that God cares and loves his vineyard so much. But the thing that I want you to notice is I want you to know his beloved son. And maybe I'm making too much of this, but in, in verse 6, Jesus in his story said he still had one to send, one to send, a beloved son. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, the one and only unique Son of God. You know, Jesus was not a created being. I think, you know, in the early church, the early church wrestled over who Jesus was, right? And there was this one guy named Arian, and, and Arian said Jesus was a created being, right? He was, he was created by God. But the church eventually came to a place where they rejected that. And they said, no, Jesus wasn't created. Jesus was God become one of us. And the thing that I think that's so neat about this is, and we've talked about this a lot, the church came to understand, even though it's we don't really understand it, God is one being, one person, right? I mean, not one person, excuse me, one being, but he's three persons. And these three persons love each other. And God the Father, God, Jesus, the Son, God, the Spirit, they were willing to send the Son, Jesus, into the world to, to say, hey, I want my vineyard back, right? I want the vineyard. I want the vineyard to be what I wanted it to be. And uh, he was willing to send his beloved Son. The Father loves the Son. The Spirit loves the Son. The Son loves the Father, loves the Spirit. Spirit loves the Father, the Son, the Spirit loves them all. They, they had this, they love one another, right? They love one another. And the love that we experience, the reason we experience love, the reason we know love is because we're made in His image. And because God is love. And so we understand love and we understand this love that God has for the Son and the Spirit. And in the midst of all of that, God loving his son, God loving Jesus, he sent him into the world. So here's what John the Apostle would write about this in 1 John 4, 9. He says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Knowing that would happen, God sent his beloved son into the world. Let's go on to the next one. God will judge. God will judge, verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. So at this point, Jesus asks a question, what do you think God's going to do with those tenants? And he doesn't wait for an answer. He says, God will kill them. Kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. God's going to, God's patience is going to come to an end. Now the owner will come and kill them, not just remove them. Jesus is telling the religious leaders of, of, of Israel, he's telling Israel, be careful. God is going to destroy you and give the vineyard to others. God's patience. Now this, this is the heart of what I, I think the parable is all about. God's patience is not endless. 
God's patience comes to an end. At some point, every generation and every person, God's patience will come to an end with all of us. He is patient and long-suffering when it comes to people rebelling against him. However, there is always a moment when his patience will run out. And God is certainly patient. In the second letter that Peter wrote, right, people were mocking the Christians. And they were mocking the Christians because they said, hey, you remember Jesus is coming back? When's he coming back? Hey, we've been waiting. And it probably been a couple of decades, maybe, maybe three decades. They've been waiting and people were mocking the Christians because Jesus hadn't come back. This is what Peter writes. He says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. So he starts off and he says, Hey, God's time's different than our timing, okay? But then in verse 9, he says, The Lord does not delay His promise, as some delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. There may have been decades, but now there's been two millennia. You know, one thing for sure, God has not been in a hurry to come and inaugurate His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Now, that day is coming, But he's been patient. We've been waiting 2,000 years for that. You know, I meditated on that a lot this week, thinking about that. And I thought, man, 2,000 years, that seems like an eternity, doesn't it? Two millennia? I mean, if you go back to Abraham, we're talking, I think Abraham's like three millennia. So you're talking like five millennia since Abraham. That's a long time. But what is a, a millennia to a God who is eternal? Serious, when there's no time for God, what, what is a millennia? And, and I got to thinking, you know, we're, we're all saying, hey, we're, we're, we're really near the end. We're really near when you, and we may be. I have no idea, right? I'm not trying to say that, but I'm saying, I'm trying to say, what if God is still going to continue to be patient? What if God's going to be patient for another two millennia? God's patient with us. That's what Peter says. That's why Jesus hasn't come back, because God is patient. But here's the point. But his patience will come to an end. Chapter 3, verse 7, here's what he says. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. He also says the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So I'm so glad that God is loving and gracious and forgiving and patient. Aren't you? Aren't you glad that God is patient with you? And remember Ananias and Sapphira when they sinned against the Lord? I mean, I mean, their judgment was immediate, right? But for most of us, you know, our sin is not immediate. God is being patient with us. But, but don't miss this. God is righteous and just and he will be our judge and his Patience will come to an end and his judgment will be real. He doesn't judge because he's mean. He doesn't judge because he's mad. He doesn't judge because he's vengeful. He judges because he's holy and righteous and it's part of his character to judge sin and what's wrong. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this comes the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. You will die one day. There'll be judgment after your death. Your sins can be forgiven because of Jesus. 
And you can receive eternal life or salvation, Jesus says. And that brings me to the last thing I think Jesus is trying to say in his parable. And that is that God's plan will prevail. There's going to be judgment against Israel, uh, but God's plan, God's grace will prevail. Remember, God planted a vineyard, a kingdom of his people to bless the world. God's vineyard, God's plan was Israel. Israel was the kingdom. Israel were the caretaker of the kingdom. But as a nation, according to Isaiah, they were rotten fruit. And according to Jesus now, God says, hey, there's a shift coming, okay? As the tenants responsible are going to be rejected by the Lord. And he's going to, he's going to put new tenants, he says. I'm going to kill those tenants, and I am going to give the vineyard to others. And so Jesus continues in verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. And as he ends the story, Jesus offers a prophecy. And he quotes from Psalm 118, and he says, The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Well, the cornerstone of what? The cornerstone of the new covenant that God is making with with the tenants of the vineyard. And this cornerstone was that all who believe in the Lord Jesus will be caretakers, will be the vineyard, and will be the caretakers of the vineyard. The new covenant was that Jesus would live this perfect life. I mean, he'd never sin against the Lord. He would be absolutely perfect in his morality. And he would then die as a substitute for us. The wages of sin is death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God in hell. And Jesus died to rescue us from that death. The godly for the ungodly. And the new covenant was that anyone, now listen, Jew or Gentile who puts their faith in Jesus and becomes his disciple, that person is part of the vineyard. And that person is now a caretaker in the vineyard. And the Jewish leadership, most of Israel, had rejected Jesus, but God would exalt him, raising him from the dead. He would be the cornerstone of this new covenant that God was making. And here's my point. The plan of God, to plant a vineyard, to build a kingdom, it's it's going to prevail. Despite the fact that Israel did what Israel did, his plan will prevail. And God knew that all along. And so verse 12, they were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he spoke in this parable against them. So they left him and they went away. I tell you what, I imagine them shaking with anger. I mean, I don't know whether they did or not, but I imagine them shaking as the realization, hey, he's talking about us. He's talking about us. I imagine them shaking with anger, but it says they were afraid of the crowd. They couldn't do anything, and so they went away. And that's the end of the parable. That's the end of, of where we're going to get to today. So, I have two takeaways for us this morning, two I will statements for us this morning. Here's the first one. And one's from the first little story, and this is the second one will be from the second story. From the first story, here's my takeaway. Remember, remember, I'm challenging us every every time we sit under the word of God, whether it be here or in a in a home group Bible study, in a Sunday school class. 
You know, and like I didn't do it this morning, but in Sunday school, but, but I'm trying to ask myself, Lord, what do I, what could be an application? I want to obey you. I want to follow you. What is it? What is it you want me to do? Here's the I will that I think that God wants from you and me today. I will submit to Jesus authority. I think that's the I will from the first statement. I will, Lord, I want to submit to all that you've commanded me. I want to do what you desire of me. I want to submit my life to you. And so this morning, the I will for you and me is this, or, or the, maybe the application of the application would be, where is that not true? Where am I not submitting myself to Jesus? And I know it because he keeps, he keeps poking me with his Holy Spirit. Jimmy, Jimmy, where is it that I'm not Submitting to Jesus, I, my I will for me, and I suggest it for you is I will submit to the authority of Jesus. Where is it that God wants you to bow and worship before Him? The second I will statement that I have um, for us with regard to this parable of the vineyard would be this I will do my best to take care of the vineyard of the Lord. Because you see, if, if I'm right in how, and if I'm right in interpreting the parable the way Jesus means it, right? The people of God, the vineyard of God are, are all now anyone, Jews and Gentiles, who have submitted themselves to Jesus, who are followers of Jesus, who have believed on the Lord Jesus, right? They are the vineyard. But by the same token, we're the, we're the caretakers of the vineyard, right? I'm not just a caretaker because I'm a pastor. I, I get, maybe have a special job in that caretaking as a pastor, but I'm telling you, every one of you in this room is just as responsible as me to care for the body of Christ, to care for the kingdom of God, the vineyard of God. You're just as responsible. You know, I, I, uh, I had someone come to my office this morning and, uh, and, and they came to tell me something. They, you know, we'd had a little conflict and, and they came to basically say, hey, man, I love you, and we are not going to allow G- uh, Satan to defeat us here. We are going to walk in our love for Jesus and each other. And I tell you what, I, I was blessed to the point of tears with that because that's what that's, we need to guard the body of Christ. You are responsible. I'm responsible. We, it's our job. We're the caretakers of the vineyard. And so the I will statement that I am saying for myself is, God, I'm going to do my best to care for your vineyard. And I want you to join me in that and doing your best to care for the vineyard of God, no matter what. Those are my two I wills. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.